Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. What has frustrated me over the years is that there seems to be a hesitation to move with all deliberate speed to address the real issues that are impacting people. Because we have politics that play a role in that. And if I stick with higher ed, we love our committees. We love to sit and talk about things forever. But when you think about the need, our students, our communities, they need help now. Life's hard, but when you find your path in life, you'll find fulfillment. I'm Sam Coates, and welcome to the Driven By Podcast. On this show, I talk to people with purpose. And hearing these stories and conversations, my hope is that you'll see your path, which will bring out the best in you. Follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram at Sam P. Coates, and learn more about my guests and subscribe to the show at DrivenByPodcast.com. My guest this week is Dr. Tracy Hall. Tracy is the president of Southwest Tennessee Community College out of Memphis, Tennessee. This conversation is important regardless if you live in Memphis or not. We talk education, changing the narrative, the importance of STEM education, why community colleges matter, and more. When Dr. Hall took over Southwest Tennessee Community College, Southwest had a graduation rate of 5%. Recently, under her leadership, Southwest Tennessee was awarded the prestigious National Bellwether Award in the category with Redesign, Reinvent, and Reset. I wanted to have a conversation with Dr. Hall because when I heard her speech, when she was named the new president, she was very straightforward and she was honest about the reality, but also hopeful about what her new community college could be. In addition to these things, we discuss why she hates the term at-risk students, how she is living out the dreams of those before her, how to do more than just talk and actually get stuff done, the future of community college education, and how they are adapting with the marketplace, and more. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Tracy Hall. Hey, everybody. I have one last quick cool company to tell you about. Are you like a majority of Americans who love the idea of working from home when you want to? If you do, then I bet you'll like to check out havenspaces.org. Havenspace lets you design the outdoor office of your dreams, but we make it easy and build and ship directly to you. Go to havenspaces.org. That's H-A-V-E-N-S-P-A-C-E-S.org to learn more and see how to connect with us. Full disclosure, I do own this company, 
but I'm willing to put it out here on this podcast because I know it'll make your life better. And they look pretty awesome too. Now we're going to get back to the show. So before you got your doctorate degree in education, what did you do in between that period? Because I know you got your master's of arts from Wichita State. And I'm curious, what, what did that chunk of time look like for you and your work? Yes, uh, in terms of education, I, I am first-generation college student. Wow. Uh, w- yes, started, uh, graduated from high school a lot of years ago uh, and went off to college um, uh, in, at Southeast Missouri State. So I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, the neighborhood, the area is called Coo Valley. Not many people have heard of Coo Valley, but it's right next door to Ferguson. And so now everyone knows about Ferguson. Yeah. So that's that's where I am from. and went off to school, not knowing really much about college, being first generation. I knew that I was going. My mother was very insistent on the fact that I would be attending. But in terms of how to do that, how to navigate that world, she couldn't prepare me because she didn't know. Uh, She just knew one thing, that I would be going. And so thankfully, I was able to attend uh, Southeast Missouri State and um, went there really not understanding the whole process, not understanding, you know, higher ed is is difficult to navigate. There are so many different offices and just the culture is different from high school where you really have that guidance along the way in high school and college. You are an adult and you are expected to navigate a, a system. Uh, and that may be easier for people that may have a roadmap uh, that has been laid out before them, maybe with parents or siblings, but that wasn't my story. Yeah. Did you make good grades in high school? I did. I made uh, very good grades in high school. Like 4 material? No, I wasn't. No, no. So let's define good. Yeah. Um, I wasn't 4.0, but I was over 3. I thought 3.0 or above. I was pretty popular in high school. I don't mention this a lot because it seems like it's so Weird to say homecoming that queen? as I am. I was homecoming. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was home. That just sounds so crazy to even say, but I was homecoming queen and I was voted most popular girl. Oh, wow. In most popular in, in high school. And uh, I was the second prettiest girl in high school. So All right. this needs to be the last time that I mentioned <laughs> that happened. You heard it here. In high school, but since you asked, yeah. yes. <laughs> If you ever run for office or anything, I'll make sure and uh, we'll, we'll edit this and tighten it up and I'll get it to you. Yes, yes, yes. I, 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 for some reason, I just don't think it should be on my resume, though. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I hear you. Well, that's that's why these are fun. They're more laid back. <laughs> so w- was your father around in high school or was it your single mother home? Uh, my mom, uh, we started out as a single. She was single parent. She became, She married when I was eight years old. But for the first eight years of my life, it's just my mom, a single mom, teen mom, actually. And she ended up, actually, she did attend her first semester of school, but dropped out after she became pregnant with me. So in, in, in that first semester of her freshman year, so she really, although she went, she really still didn't know either what or how to navigate the system, became pregnant with me and uh, ended up getting a job at the post office which was a very good thing because it helped to provide us with a, a lifestyle that uh, was very comfortable. Yes, ma'am. Is it a fair or accurate uh, just assumption to say that 
because of her experience that fueled her desire to want to instill it into you in an early age that you were going to go to college? Yes, I believe I, I believe a lot of my life she's lived vicariously through me. So the going to college piece is what she wanted to do. She wanted to be in education and I'm in education. And she's really lived a lot of her dreams through me and what I've wanted to do. And it's been, um, I think, fun for her and for me uh, and a driving force for me as well to know uh, that uh, what I do is not just about me or it's not just about my accomplishments. I'm living out the dreams of some of the folks that have come before me that for whatever reason, uh, they were unable to achieve their goals in that area of their lives, but then they decided on new goals. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is she still alive today? She is. She is alive, thankfully. Do you, do you get to talk to her and kind of live out this dream together? We do. We do. We get to talk about my my life and um, the accomplishments that I've had and, and my success. Uh, it, it's due in large part to, um, you're talking about grit yeah, uh, and grind. That's my mother. She is a fighter uh, and has always been that. And um, expectations have always been high. She set that example even with her sibling. She was one of eight. And they will say to this day that, how hard she worked and what she, uh, her goals were. She always set the, the bar really high and helped them. And so that's what I grew up with. She was definitely and is definitely about defying the odds and defying stereotypes. You know, sometimes society will define you based on whatever metrics they, whoever the big they are, uh, deemed to be important. But we've never lived our lives based off of anyone else's standards. And so that whole, this is how teen moms, the, the statistics for teen moms, well, she defied that stereotype. Yes, ma'am. I can feel that when you speak, I can, and we'll get here in a minute, but I can feel that when you take on a challenge, I can even feel that when you talk about, you know, there's, you've already had great success We'll talk about the bellwether. I said that right, bellwether. Bellwether, yes, of course. Yes. But but even when you talk about adversity, or even when you talked about accepting the role, you can feel that when you speak. I'm curious. So when you when you got your masters from Wichita State, what that next 15 years look like? Well, the next 15 years, I'll tell you, the masters program. My my experience at Wichita State was one of those things that I had not planned to even have that experience. I had not planned to even go to Wichita. My, my husband, I went to college at SEMO and got, I planned to get a degree and ended up getting a husband. Yeah, uh, and nice. he graduated. Uh, for, it, it's worked out uh, 34 years and three children later. It's worked wow. out. That's been Congratulations. A good thank you. Thank you. So we ended up, he joined the military and uh, was stationed at McConnell Air Force Base in Wichita, Kansas. And so here I find myself with a bachelor's degree at that time. And what am I going to do uh, in Wichita, Kansas? And I met a faculty member. I finished up, it's a long story, the military wife moved to in the middle of my bachelor's degree, finished up my undergraduate at 
Wichita State, transferred it back and got my degree from the University of Missouri St. Louis. But in the process, I met Dr. John Gaston, okay. a faculty member uh, at Wichita State. And he asked, what was I planning to do with the rest of my life? Well, I did not know, honestly, because I thought I was going to get this bachelor's degree in journalism and I was going to New York to have this career in New York. And here I was in Wichita, Kansas. Yeah. He asked, well, are you interested in teaching? Well, I had not been interested in teaching at all. He said, well, think about that. And he said, I can help you get a graduate teaching assistantship. Wow. And I can I can work that out. And so I thought about it and it helped even more when he said it will pay for 75 percent of your master's degree. And I say, you know, teaching sounds like a fine career. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so uh, that's how I got into teaching. Dr. John Gaston, I became a graduate teaching assistantship working on my master's degree. I was about 22 years old. And that's when it really started to click maybe what I like to do and what I wanted to do. And I enjoyed being in the classroom. I enjoyed interacting with the students, many of whom were my age or older, to be honest with you. But I enjoyed that. I enjoyed just the whole college life and being on a college campus. And I thought this this could be pretty good. And so I ended up finishing up my master's degree, became an adjunct teacher at Wichita State. And then I applied for a position back at home in St. Louis. And that was my first uh, introduction, rather, to really working at a community college. And once I got bitten by that community college bug, that's where I wanted to be. Uh, And so just kind of moved through the ranks there, the the traditional route, faculty, you know, associate dean, and you just kind of move up the ranks. And that was at St. Louis. We went to... Atlanta for a little while. My husband had a coaching position and I worked at Kennesaw State University. Um, And so you just kind of move through that kind of traditional path. But along that path, I met other people that helped to shape me. And that's why I think, you know, just having people in your lives that are really wanting to help to grow you, they see something in you. Uh, And so you had Dr. Gaston was critical. Uh, When I went to St. Louis, I had an opportunity to attend Kaleidoscope. Uh, It's a leadership institute for women of color who are interested in becoming college presidents. And so I got an opportunity to attend. I'm a junior faculty member, my first full-time job. And they said, you want to go to Atlanta for this leadership institute? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Now, really, to be honest with you, I was more interested in the fact that it was in Atlanta. (laughs) Yeah. Less on the leadership and professional development, more on the Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, And so we went and I had a ball in Atlanta and I learned so much. And I saw all of these women of all different ethnicities who were regular women, just like I was and am. And they didn't have any fancy backgrounds, but they were college presidents. And this was not even a career that I had even thought of. But something was sparked in me with that experience. This was 1997. And at that time, I, you know, all the women there were all polished and they had their suits on and looking professional. And I, as a faculty member, I just had on slacks and a blouse because that's what I wore. And I'm looking at all these other women and how polished they were. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm not, am I ready even to do this? But they started talking and saying, regardless of where you are, this is how you prepare. And even if you don't know for sure that you want to be a president, start 
preparing yourself. And one of the things was get a doctorate degree. Do you believe when you look back over your life, was there a sense of fate or was there a sense of God that you see in your life that kind of led you through these different, these roles, these educational opportunities, these these relationships of people that like saw something in you? Like, do you see that or do you feel like it just kind of, it is what it is and it just worked out? Well, you know, that's interesting that you would say that because as I've grown older and when you reflect on your life and you, when you're in that moment, it feels like I don't know how this is happening or how this person has seen something in need of value or how I got to Southeast Missouri State looking for a degree but found a husband and went to all of these things feel like, okay, I'm just kind of meandering through life. As I've grown older and I look back, I, I have my own personal relationship with God. My faith is central to how I think and how I act. And I look back and I say, you know, God, you were in this all along. Uh, you know, in the church, we say, you know, God orders our steps. And and I, I look back and I think it wasn't just I happened to get to SEMO and I went to Wichita. He was ordering my steps and my path because as I look back over my life and I see the people with whom I've come into contact with and the experiences that I've had. And I think about now all of the things that I have to do in my current role that have prepared me. I mean, all those things that happened in the past prepared me for where I am now. I can remember having a conversation with my mother some years ago when I was working as an associate dean in uh, Kansas City. And at that time, they were just putting so many things on my plate. I was associate dean of instruction. And that was also strategic planning and marketing and communication and athletics I mean, I was doing some of everything and without (laughs) extra pay, mind you. And I remember saying to my mother, they're just taking advantage of me. They're just putting all these things on my plate and I don't feel valued. And she said, just hold on and wait. She said, everything that they are giving you is going to pay off later. Just wait and see. You're going to find some benefit from that. Well, that was a great motherly thing to say, but I wasn't buying it because I needed extra compensation (laughs) for all of this work that they were giving me. But she was so right, because as a president, all of these things that I'm having to do now, I look back and I thought, okay, yes, I I remember my role with athletics and and with facilities and with, you know, uh, room reservations and special events and marketing and communication. And I had to help to support president in his messaging, uh, conflicts, the different scandals that happened all along the way, all of these experiences that I didn't understand. Now I understand. I understand the journey. And I know God was in there all alone. I didn't know. I didn't see it. It just felt like I was meandering through life and things were happening to me. But it was his plan. And I understand that fully. Yes, ma'am. It's been super encouraging. You know, I do share the same faith that you have and that you describe. But I never come at these interviews like where I expect everybody to believe that. But you know, so the, I always try to keep it just wide open with curiosity. And then, you know, where it's appropriate, I'll engage in the conversation with my own heart, my own experience. But right. since starting this show, I did it May, June of last year, uh, June, July. But it's been so encouraging being like for me personally, in my early 30s. And I know this is the same way for other people, yeah. but where you're trying to just figure life out and you're trying to 
you know, you, you like working hard, you like, but mm -hmm. you like trying to do something of value. You want to, you know, you right. want to contribute in your own way, whatever that looks like. Yeah. But that's one of the biggest themes that I've unpacked when I hear people like yourself and others every single week. And I would say this, some people would say this, that don't even subscribe to, to believing in yes. God or, or talk about their faith, but there's just this beautiful narrative that plays out and it's, it's increased a, a tremendous amount more faith in my own life because yeah. in it, and it kind of, it's reinforced this concept of just really trying to go a hundred percent today, yeah. trying to continue to stretch, continue to try to take advantage. If I'm asked to do things that I feel like, or I'm like, wow, that's uncomfortable. Just do it. And if it fails, own it. But, that's right. you know, but there's that sense of fire that I think can be lit and it can also lead to a place of contentment as well. So right. it's really, really encouraging hearing you flesh that out. Going back to the beginning part of that, of our conversation earlier, can you take your experience? Can you talk about the obstacles with education, the obstacles of being labeled a statistic? Can you talk about just all the things that you talked about through your own personal life and how you're applying that to Southwest, how you're applying that to the students that y'all serve, how you apply that to all the people that work with you and the team you're building. I'm just curious, can we maybe cover that head on? And can you talk about how you living it, you going through it, you fighting, you having that grit you talked about with your mom, how you apply that to really trying to serve and, and give that to your students now? Well, I, I, that is uh, a part of what drives me, uh, my experiences, uh, having in some cases, not all cases though, but in some cases having people count me out are just not even counting me out intentionally, just ignoring me. I do not have the, I won't say the, the blessing of height. I'm, I'm pretty short in stature. My voice is kind of low, the, the soft voice. Uh, and I am accustomed to people just disregarding me. Just accustomed. That's, that's just kind of been how it is, especially professionally. Uh, when I'm in a room, I'm not the most talkative of people in the room. There are people who have the quote unquote traditional kind of leadership type of persona that when they come in the room, they're the ones doing the most talking and they're you know loud and they're saying a whole lot of things. And those people tend to get more attention. And I've just never that's just not my personality. I don't uh, require uh, or desire necessarily the limelight. I'm very comfortable in the background. I, be, I am very comfortable, which I know God has to be in this role of helping me to be a president because I'm in the public light, light so often. This would not have probably been my chosen profession that I'm so out there. So I'm used to being ignored. But what I like about uh, my career is that I'm helping people who may have been the person that's ignored to see that you don't have to fit anyone's definition of what a leader is. Just because you are sitting at the table doing all the talking doesn't mean you know everything or even what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I tend to listen a lot. I observe everything and making sure that, you know, you're looking at the dynamics of the room and you're paying attention to nonverbals. And I don't have to be the one. I used to feel as though I had to fit other people's 
ideas of what a leader is supposed to be and do. And I found that that doesn't work for me. I am who I am and I'm comfortable in my skin and in my role. I have a soft voice. That's who I am. I don't talk a whole lot in a room to help feel a certain way. I'm not trying to impress anybody. I really am not. What I'm trying to do is speak on behalf of my students. And so how I translate that into my work or transfer that into my work is I really am driven to identify people at the college and students that they may have been marginalized. And that's our student population. Most of our students that come to Southwest or at any community college, they have been marginalized in some way. And people have overlooked them. People have underestimated them. People have labeled them as at risk. I hate that term. How dare you call somebody at risk? And 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 who who gives you the authority to say that somebody's at risk? We all are at risk of something. Uh, and so when we start labeling people and determining who they are and their potential, I don't like that. And that's who community college students are. And so when you see our students come to us from whatever background and they can achieve, that defies stereotypes. That defies the odds. That takes that marginalization away from them and helps them to see that they do have something to contribute to this world. And they don't have to be the A student. They don't have to be the 4.0. They don't have to be the one with the, the uh, coming from the fancy neighborhoods and the pedigree with parents having all these connections to help them. You don't have to have all that in order to be uh, a, a positive, make a positive contribution to this world. Now, there will be obstacles, there will be barriers, and we address those barriers depending on what they are, but we don't let that define us. And so that's the message that I try to uh, send to students, that it doesn't matter your zip code. It, I'll say people will limit you based on your zip code, but don't internalize that. Don't let people's definition of you uh, define you at risk, dysfunctional. You see people who call other people dysfunctional and you dig into their lives and they're probably as dysfunctional, if not more. Yes, ma'am. So that that drives me. So my experiences help me when I'm thinking about my students. And we don't call students at Southwest at, at risk. We call them at promise. Right. We look at their potential because they have potential to do whatever they can do. Yes, ma'am. I'm sure you've got a few of these, but I'm curious off the top of your head, what's your favorite story of a student that was marginalized that when you look at them now, you feel like they just verify everything that you just said? There's a student, I won't call her name, but she, back in Kansas City, I remember a conversation she was having. She was speaking to us um, at a faculty staff meeting, and she was saying how when she was in high school, she was just passed through, uh, you know, just given grades. She was attractive and teachers really didn't focus on her a lot uh, because they were so busy dealing with other students that, you know, maybe had some uh, behavior issues or whatever. So she just was passed through. She didn't know she was just being passed through. So she had all these great grades. And when she came to the college, she realized how much she didn't know and how much she had not learned. And so she felt at a real disadvantage in the classroom as though she was not able to compete with the other students. And so she was talking about how she was trying to get her self-esteem because this image of herself in high school was um, 
not the same image that she had of herself as a college student. So she was struggling. So you fast forward all these years later, and I thought about how is she doing and found her uh, on Facebook. And I see that she has her own um, motivational speaking. Oh, wow. Uh, she's married to a, a, a preacher and they have these uh, uh, sermons that they have on 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 video and I see how well she's doing and she's a mom and and I see how she's turned her experiences of being marginalized into this great story uh, of her life and how she's just blossomed uh, and I, I was proud to see her and this is just a couple weeks ago when I just said, I wonder how she's doing. Let me just see if I can find her uh, on Facebook. And I, you know, Facebook's wonderful. So you can just find people. And I'm like, look at her. This is fantastic. This is the same young woman who was frustrated by how much she didn't get in high school and frustrated about how she was not being successful in college. And look at how she's turned her life. What has she made you know, how she's made her life into this real success story. So I'm really proud. That's just one of many stories. Yeah. And you were used to kind of intervene with her at that crucial moment. Is that correct? Well, in terms of all of us. So we, when you have students that you are mentoring either formally or informally, so I can't take credit for her growth and development. I am a witness to how she has uh, changed her life. Yes, ma'am. Even though she had been marginalized. But you were investing in her at that period of time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I, in my role as an associate dean, uh, making sure that she had that platform to even tell her story. That was one of the uh, and one of the events that we organized so she can tell her story about how she felt. Yes, ma'am. What are the things that you feel a student has to undergo to really change the narrative in their own head? And I can't personally identify with everything that you said, but I can identify with those voices in your head, or I can identify with insecurities, or I can identify with experiences that I felt a lot of shame about, Mm -hmm. either that were, you know, my own doing or something that I didn't do. But it's just, you know, I'm familiar with neuroplasticity. I'm familiar Mm -hmm. with, obviously, habits and all those things. And I'm also familiar with the freedom of what happens when you kind of, when there's somebody like yourself who invests their time and their own story, their own life into you, not to make themselves come across a certain way, but to encourage you to intervene. And I've seen the power of that and the freedom that comes with it. So I think we all have that. And I think if anybody would say they don't, they're, they're a maniac or they're a a pathological liar. And so I'm curious, what, what, what's the process look like? Um, that you see with students, and I know this could be odd to others, but specifically with students? Well, I think when you're talking about students, you know, our students come to us from all different backgrounds and all different ages. And so um, the one common theme I find with students is that they do not realize their potential. And they've had so many different challenges in life or had experiences that have shown them how much they do not matter, regardless of what their age may be. The narrative that they've had is that they can't, or they won't, or there are limits to what they can do. And so what you have to do is to help them to see what they can do. So this is one of the reasons why we don't 
talk about at risk because that further marginalized them. That further uh, is kind of that whole self-fulfilling prophecy. If you keep telling students over and over again that they are at risk, they are disadvantaged, they are uh, deficient in some way, how could they not believe that? Especially if people in their lives and so-called leaders are saying these things constantly. And so by the time they get to us, they are at least 18 years old, at least, but our average age is about 28 years old. So you think about how long a person has had to hear what they cannot do. And institutions have played a role in helping people to feel marginalized. So whether it's educational institutions, whether it's criminal justice institution, whether it's religious institutions, whether it's the family institution, there's some aspect in one or more of them that have instilled in young people what they cannot do or what their limitations are or that they are less than in some way. So by the time they reach us, they have been broken. And so we have to find a way in three years, which is the average of, you know, as they enroll and matriculate and graduate, in three years to erase at least 18 years of a message that they have been given. And so how do we do that? It's, it's nearly impossible to do that, but we do the best we can to help them to see what they can do and how to advocate for themselves and that they have a right to speak for themselves, that they do matter, that they aren't all of these things that they've been told that they are and how they can grow. We had students that, um, Last week, uh, we had the Secretary of State visit oh, one wow. of our campus, uh, Whitehaven campus. And Congratulations. Yes, yes. Thank you. That was a huge deal for us to have uh, Secretary Harvard. Well, these students were talking about uh, their experiences and how um, Southwest has helped them to like school. And they don't want to leave. They're graduating in May and they don't want to leave because they, the experience that they had at Southwest was so fulfilling. And so one mentioned a school district uh, from which she graduated and how she didn't feel valued in that particular school district and didn't like school. And another one talked about after graduation, how her life kind of took a path of drugs and, and all of that and how she has seen what she can do. They are the president of the SGA and the vice president of SGA wow. and, and how much they love school. And so they were two examples of students. And, and honestly, I hadn't even heard their story until that day. They were two examples of students that had been given that message that they didn't matter. And they are in their 20s and have rediscovered school and that they're going to go on their path to education and now will be graduated in May. And so they now realize their potential. And so that is one of the things that I think that we have to definitely instill in our students what they can do and how they can contribute. And we can't keep telling students the story of what they can't do and, and wonder why we have certain issues in our community. And we want to look at the present, but we need to dig deeper and find out what happened in the past that has helped to create this particular individual that thinks the way that they think. Again, no excuses for poor, horrible decisions that some people make, not saying that. But we have to look at how we all have played a role, the family included, in helping to create 
certain situations. Hey everybody, we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. What's the gap between Caucasian, African-American on the, on the wealth disparity? I've heard you talk about this before, but do you know that statistic offhand? I don't. I don't know the statistic offhand. I know it exists, uh, the disparities, not only in wealth, the disparities in, uh, disparities in health. Here, as we see with COVID, uh, African-Americans disproportionately impacted by COVID. And so there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, and, and those are the types of things when we are making decisions about how we proceed, we have to unpack it all. A lot of times there's the tendency to look at the end result and say, how can we fix the end result? We have to look at the system. We have to look at all of it. And let's start unpacking how do we get to where we are? And, and owning our role in that, not blaming anyone, just owning that role and let's fix it. It's not about blame, it's about fixing. We're not going to fix it if we don't even own our, 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 our role in helping to create it. It's like our behavior. It's, it's like how we live our personal lives. We can't change mm-hmm. our marriage. We can't change our friendships until we own, own it and articulate it and then be held accountable for it. That's right. So- is it fair that you're viewing your work and you have been viewing as your work is you are taking in all the students that have all this potential, like I do, like you mm-hmm. do, like we all do. Mm-hmm. And you are helping truly create a quality in the communities that you serve because you are investing in, you're helping people challenge their own narratives, their own labels, how they, you know, how they've been treated, their self-fulfilled prophecies, et cetera. And they're getting connection. I know you've talked about mentoring within Southwest Tennessee. I know you talked yeah. how y'all stepped that up. I think uh, the the lady that assisted you on an interview with um, Bill Drees and, and Eric Barnes, she was there yeah. talking about how y'all made these adjustments to help people relationally more connected in the community college, all yeah. to help people understand their potential and all to help people understand where their curiosities may take them, how to provide for their families, but how also to pursue work they love and make an impact I mean, I know this is like a elevator d- deal of a, of a very complex, very challenging, but the work that you're doing and you're articulating is very redeeming and it's very empowering. I think, I think so. And I think, you know, when you talk about, I go back to my point of owning uh, how we've all played a role in disenfranchising people or giving them that narrative. I'll take what we've done at Southwest. And so uh, we've won this uh, 2021 Bellwether Award. Uh, Congratulations. <laughs> we won that for planning, finance, and governing. Uh, and, and that's a huge deal. It's competitive 
uh, award to win. Uh, we're in competition with some really stellar institutions across the country. And so we are really honored uh, to even be recognized. We were honored to be nominated, as they say, but we we're really uh, honored to have won that award. And what we did is we submitted our work uh, over the past four or five years, uh, our Achieving the Dream work, where we redesigned the student experience. Because what was happening, while we have our noble cause of helping students, what we discovered is that we also were hurting students in our processes, uh, our procedures, and even with some of our people and how they were treating or not treating our students in the, the way that they needed to be treated. So we had to own the role that we have played in further disenfranchising students that already already come to us that have been disenfranchised by other institutions. So we're saying we're helping students, but no, in some ways we are hurting them. We're continuing to hurt them. So that redesign of our processes caused uh, that we had over 200 faculty and staff to dive in and look at all processes from recruitment all the way to completion. And we noticed that there are some processes that we had that just didn't make sense. There's some things that we were doing that were just confusing. And we are were unfairly hindering students in some cases with some of our policies. And so that's the next level of work. We've looked at our policies. What policies do we have that are disenfranchising students? What can we do to help make our students um, be successful? But what do we what are we currently doing? For example, we had a, a, a graduation application deadline of November. Now, students are, if they're wanting to graduate, planning to graduate in May, we had them years ago, we uh, had a deadline of November to fill out the application for graduation. That was the policy. That's how we do it. Well, students need to find out if they have a grade, what grade are they getting before they even take their spring classes. We had the graduation deadline before they even got the grades, so they didn't know if they passed or not in order to take the spring classes, which meant that they just didn't apply for graduation. So how many students over the years could have graduated in May that had to wait another year because we set this date of November when all we had to do, which is what we did through our redesign work, was to change it, I think, into March. That's just a simple tweak, but in that one tweak, we increased our graduation rate 26% because more students were able to meet the deadline because they already knew they knew what their grade would be before they had to fill out uh, the form. So it, it's those types of things that we really try to unpack at Southwest when I talk about how systems have played a role in further disenfranchising people who have been historically marginalized, but we have to own it and we have to stop leaning on the fact that, well, it's just the policy, but who wrote the policy? Who designed the process? And, and, and who does the process and the policy benefit and who does it hurt? And so that, those are the questions we have to ask. What's the graduation rate right now? We are at, I believe the last, I looked is about 11 or 12% which is we are not hanging off the roof bragging about that. We are happy, though, because when I started, it was 5%. Dang, so you've doubled it. And how much, I know the budget, the expenses, and uh, maybe total combined, I saw it was $80 million. Is that right, $80 million a year? It's roughly that, yes, it is. And how much of that is state and how much of that is city-funded? 
we do not receive financial support from the city. Our resources, our revenue comes from the state, which is about 60% and from tuition and fees. Okay. And it's about eight grand a year? Our semester is about 5,000 a year. Yes, ma'am. So you were talking about challenging processes. You were talking about challenging why things are done the way they are and not just allowing the question because it's always been done that way. Right. You've already talked about how when you took over in 2000 and... 2015. Yes, ma'am. So you've already doubled the rate from five to 10. You don't seem, and and I've heard this as we're talking today, you don't seem to shy away from hitting things head on. When you even took on the role being named president of Southwest Tennessee Community College, you were clear about the work that had to get done you were clear about the challenges that the school had, but your speech came across the same way that you're talking today, that you saw the potential and the opportunity. And I've also heard you talk about just the importance of getting stuff done. So from your own life, how have you learned how to understand, listen, challenge, take the pain of maybe things being done incorrectly, take it head on, but then get stuff done, move things in the direction that you want it to go. And, but while also kind of creating alignment and engagement with your people that are key to the cause, et cetera. Well, you know, I, this is my third urban community college. And so I've been at uh, institutions in various cities um, and I've seen what could happen. And I see the need from our students and from our communities. And what has frustrated me over the years is that there seems to be a hesitation to move with all deliberate speed to address the real issues that are impacting people because we have politics that play a role in that. And if I stick with higher ed, we love our committees. We love to sit and talk about things forever. But when you think about the need, our students, our communities, they need help now. So when we have these long timelines, like we're going to form this task force and we're going to form this committee and we're going to talk this thing over for six months and then we're going to come back with recommendations and all of that. Well, that all sounds real nice and professional. But the reality is that you're talking about things that will impact people's lives. And so can people wait six months for a decision to be made? And I always say this to my teams, I am very impatient with people with homes and cars and refrigerators full of food saying other people can wait because you're not hungry. You have a car and transportation, you have a house with lights. So yes, it's easy for you to say, let's wait six months before we make a decision because your life is not dependent upon the decision. But when people are in need, they don't need help six months from now. They need help right now. So like when we do, and this may be probably definitely not politically correct, but I'm not real good at being politically correct. <laughs> when, when we talk, when I love when we do food drives and I love when we do Thanksgiving drives and Christmas toy giveaway. I love all of that. I think that's wonderful to, to do for the community. But people are hungry every day. Kids are in need every day. And so what are we doing to make sure we address the daily needs, not uh, making a big grand gesture 
for an event or an occasion, what happens to people's lives every day? And so that's what we have to do at Southwest and at any community college, I would say, because that, you know, it sounds cliche, but community is in our middle name. It is our middle name. So what are we doing now? So let's talk. Let's, let's, what, what are the needs? Let's, let's meet. Let's make a plan. But let's get it done quickly. We have enough smart people. There are so many smart people at Southwest, about a thousand employees. There's a thousand intelligent folks. There's no reason for us to take months and months and months to decide on how to change something. Did you meet a lot of resistance when you came here and you started to really try to step it up and put it where it needed to go? Well, you know, you're always going to have resistance, but I'll tell you one of the things that I say often and it's the truth. Southwest is the best place that I've ever worked because when you have people that will jump in with this new president and I started talking about achieving the dream and on the first day of kind of the rollout, over 200 uh, faculty and staff jumped in and said, how can we help? You don't see that at most institutions. I know that had never been my experience at other institutions where they volunteered and they continue to stay engaged. If you ask uh, faculty and staff to help, I've never worked at a college where a faculty member uh, has not said, oh, yeah, I help, but what additional compensation will I get for it? doesn't mean that we don't have additional compensation for certain things. Don't get me wrong. We do value our faculty. We value our staff. But that you, in, in my experience, has been the leading question. That has not been the case in Southwest. Uh, they lead with how can we help? I remember getting feedback from faculty about some concerns that they had. I'm expecting them to talk about all these things that only impacted themselves. And, you know, most of the concerns that they had, they didn't have the necessary equipment in their classroom or they had chalk you know, boards that they didn't have chalk, which my first question was, why do you still have chalk and chalk boards anyway? But it was concerns based on the fact that they felt that they didn't have what they needed to help the students. So Southwest is a fantastic place to work. I cannot say that enough about the faculty and staff. They work together. And that's why you see us winning a 2021 Bellwether Award. You see the doubling of a graduation rate. That's not what Tracy Hall has done alone. It's all of those folks that are at Southwest. It could not happen without them. It's a, it's a fantastic place. And they were there the whole time. They just needed they direction the and time. they needed hope. That's right. So can you talk about your ability to take risks and to your ability to see challenges, to see things that are not right to put things into place. And if they don't work out exactly how it was planned, how you're not going to let that deter you. I've heard you talk about this before. You seem in tune. You don't sound Pollyannish about how things are. You seem very connected to what the needs are and to the pain. And then you're also very connected to the successes. But then it also sounds like you're a risk taker. So I'm curious, A, is that true? And B, how do you think about experimentation with new initiatives? How do you think about it when they go well? How do you think about it when they don't go well? And to quote you, you won't let that deter you. Can you maybe teach us or talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so when we started with our Achieving the Dream by Stick to the College, 
we uh, achieving the dream has a framework. And so this is how I lead. There's a framework and, and there are seven aspects of achieving the dream that we can give all that to you. Uh, but, it, you know, teaching and learning is a part of it. It's all about building institutional capacity. And so it's teaching and learning, it's strategic planning, it's leadership and vision, it's communication and, and engagement, technology and data. I'm, I'm trying to remember them off the top of my head and I can't, I can uh, share those with you later. But that's the framework that I have been operating uh, on since the beginning. And so all of the areas of the college that uh, we have focused on, it's been through that framework. And we look at best practices across the country. So what's working? What's working at the college? What's not working at the college? We need to stop doing some things that that's not working. What's working? Let's, let's focus on those. And then what's working nationally, especially with uh, colleges, uh, urban community colleges and with the colleges that have the demographics uh, similar to Southwest. And so it just makes sense that we stop doing what's not working and focus on what's working. And we know that you cannot change an institution by focusing on only one area at a time because it's a system. So if you can't change uh, or just look at recruitment and say that that's a problem without looking at admissions, Right. Without looking at financial aid and without looking at advising and without looking at the cashier's office, it's all connected. So we had to do that. We know that systems thinking and system, I think it's Peter Singy, I pronounce his name wrong all the time, but um, my, my doctoral degree is um, it focused on uh, systems, looking at change management. And so you look at how you change a system, you have to look at it all. So it's a framework. Uh, and then within that framework, you look at how do you take a chance, a risk on what may not work, but you have enough data, evidence from best practice research to show that it likely will. So again, again, this is not my first rodeo, three urban community colleges. We know that programs like TRIO, Oatwood Bound, they work. Mm. That model works where you uh, work with students in high school to get them prepared. You expose them to college where they have a program when they come on campus and they have the wraparound support services and they have uh, the mentoring and they have the counseling and they have all of this support. We know that students in those programs are more successful, those cohort. We know that our cohort programs like nursing and all of our special admit programs, our EMT, EMS, paramedic, all of those programs tend to have a higher graduation rate. Why? Because they work as a cohort. They have the support from the faculty. They have the wraparound support services. They know each other as uh, classmates. Those models work. They've always worked. So why would we not try to find a way to expand that to the whole college? So with our redesign of our student experience, we looked at how do we um, change the whole process so it's all integrated so that students, when they come to Southwest, they don't get a number saying, call this advisor. They know the advisor's name because that's the person to whom they've been assigned. It's a triage approach to help hold their hand through the process and also to get them to where they have the wraparound support services where it's advising, 
Uh, it's a mental health counseling. We have a social services coordinator, all of that, because that is what we know that's work. I think TRIO has been around since 1967, federally funded. They're getting, they're getting the money because it works. So that is, you take the risk, but it has to be a strategic risk. So the risk is, okay, it works for a small cohort. Will it work for a, a larger student population? And we have seen that it does. It's expensive, though. That model is expensive. And so how do we generate additional revenue to make sure that we're able to sustain a model like that? Well, you can't control if people are going to uh, donate to Southwest. But what you can do is uh, look at what you're currently spending money on that's not working and stop doing that. Yeah. Because a lot of times we say, oh, we don't have enough resources. Well, you may have a little bit more if you stop doing things that just don't work. Right. And so that's what we've had to do. And and so then when you help to try to get your enrollment up, increase your enrollment and increase your performance, that also helps to generate additional revenue, uh, which helps to then go back to the college to help to provide those resources for our students. Again, we're, we're, again, we're not anywhere near having the resources that we need to help our students in the ways that they need. Uh, our 11% graduation rate is, 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 is better than the 5%, but it's certainly not where we want it. But at, at the same time, we also need people to understand about community colleges is that our students don't necessarily come to us planning to get an associate degree all the time. Sometimes it's just uh, taking a class or two, and they're not always first-time, full-time freshmen. And that's how we are measured on a scale that's similar to a university. And our students are not like four-year students. What's a good graduation statistic at a four-year university? Well, I think the goal is to try to get as close to 100% of your students graduating as possible. Now, is that realistic? It, it absolutely is not. So, but I think if you can get as close, I mean, I've seen uh, institutions with a 70% uh, graduation rate. I mean, I think that that's fantastic. If we could ever get there, uh, that would be be awesome. I'm not sure that we would, would ever make it to 70% uh, graduation rate because it, again, especially with the parameters that we are measured on now, First time, full time. Many of our students come to us, they're older and they have some college. So they wouldn't even be looked at in terms of student population, in terms of who we're measuring. If we look accurately at the students uh, that come to community college and look at their completion, I think you'll see improvements in our numbers. Yes, ma'am. Well, what I meant by that and all I was saying is I understand your point. And so, like, if somebody there goes for like one year, Obviously, they're not going to help that statistic, but right. they, they're going to, they might go on to another university or something. It might be what's best for them. I also saw the average age, and I don't know what it is at Southwest, is 29 years old. So you've got all these nuances. And the reason I asked about a four-year university is just understanding a number to put it in perspective. Yeah. But I also saw that the number two community college in the country, according to this you know, data I looked at, was the University of South Carolina, Lancaster. I don't know exactly how they measure their graduation rate was 36%. So I'm just saying that difference, it totally makes sense with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how many, and I know these things are challenging and I'm not asking anything to like anything firm, but how many years do you think it's going to take you to get Southwest to where you, you want it to be or what you saw when you took it over? I mean, you've obviously increased the graduation rate from 5% to 11% since you've been here, but just 
playing the long game a little bit. I'm curious to know what you see and what the process looks like to you. I think I am um, pleased with our direction. Uh, the pandemic has caused great consternation because it has threatened to wipe out many of our advantages. When you have uh, our enrollment decline of 24%, it, you look at the various uh, populations that have been impacted. Uh, we had been making great traction with our African-American male population and had a, uh, I think, nearly 30% decline in our African-American males. We see our majority of our students are women and we've seen the decline in that population as well. So when you have something like a pandemic for which no one can prepare, that has been uh, definitely a devastating blow to the college with a possible, ten, looking at a possible $10 million uh, decline in your revenue. From the state? from the state and from our tuition and fees, because those are the two ways. The, the, the state would be in our performance uh, outcomes, right? So if we're not able, one of the metrics is how you retain your students. But if you have the pandemic, it's like handcuffs. Right, yes. And so that's been, that, that has been um, uh, something that has caused us a lot of grief. We do have uh, funding that we will receive uh, from the uh, federal government, the uh, HERF funding that uh, we understand can be used for lost revenue. And so we are uh, really excited about that so that we can pick back up, hopefully in the fall, where we left off last spring uh, with this pandemic. Um, and so we, we are wanting to continue to move in that direction, increasing our graduation rates, increasing our retention rate and our job placement rates. We now, uh, because of, the, of COVID, we have moved to yet another level and calling it Reimagine Southwest. And one of the things that we, we, we have started doing is that uh, blurring the lines between business and industry, making sure that our faculty are closely aligned even more than they have been with uh, local businesses. Uh, so our faculty externship program sends faculty into local businesses and they can get retrained. We had a pilot program this summer and we had three faculty members in a local company, and it went really well. They, um, this company has um, invited us back, uh, and we have other companies that are looking at having our faculty there. And it was a really rewarding experience for the faculty to go back in. They worked on projects. They get retrained or up, you know, and, and enhance their professional development over the summer. They bring that knowledge back to the students. Also, we're hoping it can help with the companies identifying uh, internship opportunities for our students. And so our students can get jobs after they finish our um, uh, AAS programs, those programs that are designed to prepare students to work. So kind of blurring those lines. Also addressing real issues. Uh, we uh, purchased 3,500 laptops for students uh, due to COVID. So the bridging the digital divide. So we're wanting to continue to make sure that we are addressing real needs and we are providing those services for students, uh, helping them to be successful uh, and helping to increase the social and mo um, uh, economic mobility of our students. So what, what is our, our end goal? Is it just a credential? Is it just a degree? Well, of course we wanna increase our completion rate, but we also want to have data to show that the degree made a difference in the uh, economic 
uh, mobility of that student and the economic vitality of the community. So we talk a lot about poverty in Memphis. And so what can Southwest do to decrease the poverty? We can't do it alone, of course, but what role can we play? And that's how we see ourselves. What can we do to address the issues that Memphis face, that Shelby County face, that Fayette County, because we serve that county as well. That's what we want to do, play more of a role in that. And we feel that we do, but we would like to do even more. Yes, ma'am. Curious, I saw this McKinsey survey a few weeks ago. I mean, it's not new. It's been out for a year or two, but they said their prediction, I don't know if they've revised anything, but office support roles, you know, they're projecting to be down 20% in the, you know, in the job market in the United States, 2030 and like physical work, repetitive tasks down 31%. I know we haven't really gone there yet on this episode, but the importance of STEM, you've talked about that. I've heard how Southwest talks about it. So maybe as we wrap up this morning and just with the continued emergence of, you know, autonomous vehicles, robotics, Mm -hmm you know, software that can really automate and do things a lot faster, cheaper, et cetera. How do you think about Southwest and how do you think about the next 5, 10, 20 years, the things that have already been happening, but how the adoption's becoming more widespread out through our societies? How do you position Southwest to adapt and to prepare students for an economy that's just moving very fast and where innovation and technology has continued to automate a lot of things that haven't been that way. Like when community college were founded in, I think it was 1901. Yes. So how do you, how do you think about that? I know that's a big deal. I know that's very complicated and I know you've got a lot going on when you talk about the pandemic this past year, but I'm curious, how do you think about that? Well, that is our work, right? So that's what we do. is make sure that we are preparing students for uh, and pre- uh, to, to uh, uh, be competitive uh, in the community and that we are helping Memphis to be a competitive and attractive place to, uh, for business to relocate uh, or locate uh, initially uh, because they feel that they have an educated workforce and they have people ready day on day one to work and they're prepared. And so that's what community colleges do. You mentioned the first community college, Joliet, Illinois, um, and it, it was designed to help with educators and making sure that teachers were ready. That's, that's what we do. And so in terms of um, STEM and technology, one of the things that we have done, we've seen with the, the um, pandemic is that uh, our students have not been as prepared for the uh, even working with Zoom and our Microsoft Teams, they've had some challenges with that level of technology. So what does that say uh, about how they will be prepared as we depend more and more on technology? So the one thing we could do is just say, well, we're just going to, as soon as the pandemic is over, go back to quote unquote normal, which normal for us in online, we had about 17% of our classes that were online. Now, about over 80% are online. We're not going back because the world is not going back. And so what we will do is, and what we have been doing, is helping students to navigate technology. And not just Zoom and Microsoft Teams, but uploading documents, scanning documents. Everything does not have to be face-to-face. We've seen that for a year. We've been able to manage 
for a year. The whole college has been online. So how do we help students to understand that we're not going back? In fact, we're going to elevate that and your comfort level and your knowledge with technology. Because if you don't know how or you're not comfortable with technology, you're going to lose out in jobs. We have just developed and we're waiting. It's going through the approval process an aviation operation technology degree. Nice. So pilots, flight dispatchers, uh, those are the types of programs that we are uh, we, we are developing. Again, it has to go through the approval process with uh, uh, the state t- TBR. Uh, also, our automotive technology. Being an automotive technician is not how it used to be. Uh, and so you, cars are basically computers. You have to know technology. And so one of the things that we have to do is not shy away from pushing our students and elevating them to see that, yes, you may feel more comfortable. I remember I had a student where I had pizza with the president each semester. Nice. And uh, we used to call it chat with the administration, but that was boring. Uh, (laughs) You know, you can get students to come to anything if you feed them. And so I changed it uh, when I got there to pizza with the president. And so we supply the pizza and they just show up. But I had a student to say uh, that she was not comfortable with technology and she wanted to. Why wouldn't instructors take uh, handwritten papers? And could we, you know, could we work on that? And I know she probably wanted me to say, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, because, you know, we talk about we want to serve the students and all of that. And I said, no, ma'am, we will not. Just put it out there. We're not doing that. We're not, we're, no, we're, no, I I hope none of my faculty members are taking handwritten uh, research papers. We're not going to do that. It kind of reminded me of my mother when she was talking. I was helping her with her computer. And she said, you know what I really need? I want to buy a, take me someplace where I can buy a typewriter. I said, where? (laughs) Where do they make those (laughs) typewriters? She used to be a secretary back in the day. Nobody's doing that. We have to move along. And so that's what we have to do with our students. No, we're not going to let you remain in your comfort zone of Everything has to be face to face because that's not our world. And after the pandemic, it will be a new world of how we work and how we work differently uh, and using technology. So that's what we're doing in Southwest, pushing students, uh, offering, developing programs that require more uh, of a high skilled, high uh, technology, uh, focusing on uh, our uh, already our strong programs in nursing. Uh, and our ally health programs that are uh, STEM related and helping students to be prepared for those careers that are in demand. Nurses, you can't hardly find a nurse because they're in demand. We want students to have those jobs that are in demand, that high skilled, high wage, family sustaining. Nothing wrong with jobs that help you put food on the table for a little bit. We're talking about for a lifetime. We're talking about not just a job, but a career. And so how do we do that? That's what we're focusing on. That's what we've been focusing on. And we have just um, uh, elevated that. Uh, the pandemic has, has let us see that we need to take that to even a, a, another level. Yes, ma'am. I heard you say one time, if you don't know Zoom, just go learn it and go figure it out because it ain't <laughs> going right. anywhere. And I think that describes who you are, that describes what you've talked about today, but then not to mention it's just... I respect you so much, uh, the way you've talked about coming in, taking on a challenge head on, 
how you've talked through your experience with systems thinking, mm-hmm. how to create engagement alignment, but then to also get stuff done. So yes. uh, just so honored that you'd spend time this morning and what a perfect way to stop. Well, thank you so much, Sam. It's been a pleasure uh, having this time to just sit and uh, talk with you and chat with you and meeting you. So this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yes, ma'am. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe to the show, follow me on social, and join me on this curiosity-fueled journey so that you can feel that same sense of purpose and see the opportunities that are right for you. All of this at drivenbypodcast.com. See you next time on the Driven By Podcast. Podcast.